Welcome to season four of Business Book Talk. I'm your host, Bob Garlick. This year, we have even more great books to help you excel in business and life. You can search for book topics and themes at businessbooktalk.com or subscribe using your smartphone for great content on the go. Hi, everybody. It's Bob Garlick here. I've got Richard Heitner on on the line here. And uh, I am just a little nervous because the pronunciation of of his book has got me worried. It's, uh, let me try it once, Consigliari. Did I get it or did I blow it again? Very good. No, that's great. Hey, okay. We're off to the races. And as you can tell, being number two, because today I am number two. Well, I don't know. You know, that's a very good question. Here I am. I'm interviewing you. You're giving me awesome information about your book. Who do you think is number two in this conversation? I think probably I'm the number two because, in effect, as the interviewer and producer-in-chief, you can cut me off at the pass at any time. You're accountable for the quality of the product here. Ah, and Skype as well could be a... <laughs> a facilitator. <laughs> facilitator in joy or facilitator in anger. Why coming top is uh, sometimes second best. And, and that's, I think that's just a fascinating concept because for our whole lives we hear, hey, you, you got to go to the number one. You, you got to become the CEO. You got to run the ship. You got to make it happen. And your whole book basically spins that on its head and, and says that, no, you don't. Why is that? I think you're absolutely right that that from very early days at school through to uh, our formative years in an organization or at work, uh, we are conditioned to believe that everybody's in a race for the number one slot Mm. and that everything else is defined by that number one. So you're either great because you've found that job and you've landed that job and now everything you do must be to stay in that job. And everybody else, by definition, are also rounds and losers. And, and in my experience, watching leaders up close, I've observed that many of the great leaders surround themselves with playmakers, with fixers, with anchors and educators, who in effect are the people who make that leader great. And when I look to see how much had been written about these people, uh, it's very little because still our obsession and our focus is with the number one. If you're a great leader, do you look at your secondary tier of uh, people that you work with as the people that plug up, uh, plug up the uh, inefficiencies in your personality and your management, sk- management skills? Well, I think great leaders are aware of their own limitations. So the smart ones absolutely cast people around them who can plug those inadequacies, as you say. Uh, they also, though, look for people who are stronger than them in, in, in areas where they, they may too be strong, but they're just looking for a complementary, diverse set of skills and qualities. And the more diverse a set of conciliary you can cast, the better and stronger your overall leadership endeavor will be. I remember reading business book many years ago, and my favorite quote from that book was, if you're going to hire somebody, hire a nine or a 10, not because they're going to take over your job, they're going to help push you forward. Yeah. Uh, And I think um, weak leaders, insecure leaders are constantly looking over their shoulder, uh, absolutely convinced that people are there to stab them in the back and grow Mm. that, that hot seat of power. I think, I think, Again, the great leaders are very transparent with their their C's, their consigliere, about what their consigliere's ambitions are. There's no harm in having number twos, threes, fours, who one day would like your job, who covet your job, as long as that ambition is clear and transparent. 
and a time frame is agreed, good leaders should be looking for successors. Uh, Ford have just cast their successor to Alan Mulally, and they've done, they've done a very good job of making that seamless. So I think it, often you take a conciliary job because you do still want the, the crack at the top job. But for the rest of us, it's also entirely legitimate uh, to take those kinds of jobs, which, which mean you never have to aspire to that hot seat of power. You know, and, and that kind of leads very nicely into my next question, which is, how does a leader introduce the reality of being that position? Because a number two position is a wonderful position to be in. I've been in it many times, and it you're out of the hot seat. You're not pitching stuff. You're not the ultimate salesperson, but you're giving advice, and then you get to step away, and then your advice becomes something that they have to figure out. So, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right that there are there are positions in in the number two lineup, the secondary lineup, the conciliary, where literally all that's asked of you is your advice. You know, put a uh, smoke a cigar, give me your advice, and then thank you very much. You've done your job. There are also though conciliary who play a role that's even more active and much more accountable than simply giving advice. You know, there are fixers, there are people who make things happen, mm. heads of strategy, heads of talent, all sorts of positions where, in effect, you're kind of wearing an A hat for your discipline and function whilst operating as a counsel to your leader. Mm. Um, there's a huge difference between being number one and, and, and being number two or three or five, not because it's... Uh, different in what people fundamentally would can perceive the differences like different responsibility, different pay grade, blah, blah, blah. It's more when you're in the number one position, there's nobody above you. And that is a different headspace. It is. It comes with heavy accountability and responsibility. And, and the book concludes, which, which was unexpected, uh, that we really need these final decision makers. We need these great leaders. We need them even more now that the context in which they're leading is more brutal, more public, more visible, and totally transparent. There's very little that an, a leader in the limelight can hide. So it takes real courage and a real sense of self and ego to be able to survive in that kind of punitive glare of the media. That's, that's what I admire about the great leaders who are prepared to do that. That said, uh, the conciliary are also uh, heavily accountable for what it is that's asked of them. So great leaders, whether they're in the number one or two slot, they still have to be competent. They have to be credible. They have to ooze integrity. There's certain qualities that all leaders share. But the defining difference, Bob, you're right, is that the ultimate decision maker, you know, has to carry the can for the heavy accountabilities that come with that job. Mm. So... If you're a, if you're uh, naturally talented as a, a consigliere, here you go. I'm not going to get it right. Consigliere, <clears throat> um, are you able to move into that number one position, or maybe even sometimes you're 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 a consigliere for uh, two or three rungs down. So maybe you're you're rung number four, but you're still advising somebody. You're kind of in the background, and that's where you're comfortable. Do you have to aspire to go to number one? You don't have to have that aspiration. I th my advice to people who are fascinated by leadership and, and, and want to stretch their leadership potential is that they should try and take projects or jobs which involve both A and C. In other words, jobs which for which you're ultimately the team decider, the, the kind of the chief, and other jobs where you're the counsellor, because great complete leaders are able to do both. And if you look at if you look 
of today's role models for great leaders, uh, often the A's have come from C positions, whether that's Sheryl Sandberg, uh, Tim Cook, um, the people now currently running Ford, General Motors. They're, they're people who've grown up through the ranks of conciliary uh, to, to emerge as great A's. Equally, though, if you really do believe that your natural bias and your happiness and contentment and effect is better expressed in a number two C position, then that, that's an aspiration in itself. And, and you can express that kind of leadership ability across a number of C roles. So statistically, there's only ever going to be one number one. Uh, the rest of us are left kind of to enjoy the many jobs that you can have uh, from which you can make a leadership contribution. I like that, making a leadership contribution, and I think that's a wonderful thing to aspire for. Now, I wanted to ask you, obviously, uh, you have had this position sometime in your life or you wouldn't have written a book. So yeah. for you, have you been doing that for your whole career? Have you been aware of that as part of the structure of, of growth, or has it just happened recently? Can candidly, it was about six, seven years ago <laughs> after a career in which I'd been a kind of lifetime number one or number one wannabe. Mm. Uh, and uh, I'd never really appreciated that great leadership can come both throughout the organization across a number of roles. And it was only when I kind of had enough of being a number one, when I, when I reflected that there was little joy in my professional life, <laughs> uh, uh, that I thought, right, I'm gonna take a, I'm, I'm gonna take a radical step. Uh, in fact, I went to discuss that with my A, my boss at Saatchi and Saatchi, Kevin Roberts. And he said, why don't you have a go at a staff role instead of a line? Why don't you try a staff role mm. and, and take a look at a, a job which is wholly different from having 1,800 people reporting through to you, a region to run? And um, I took a deep breath and thought, I'm going to give this a go. And about three years ago, reflected, I'd never been more kind of happy, more content, uh, I think probably more influential in the current organization than I had been as a, as a chief executive. So it, it wasn't something that dawned on me earlier and that was the driving motivation to the book. I would like more young people as they approach organizations and reflect on their careers to think more deeply about which position really suits them and to understand and appreciate that they can become much better leaders, more consciously focused on this C role, this number two, three, four role, whatever you, whatever you like to call it, uh, before they simply conclude that there's only one way to, to, to be a leader, and that's looking at the top of the hierarchy and chasing that. Mm. Um, for people, you know, and that's a huge career decision to make because if you're in the wrong organization and you kind of let this be known to people that are above you, they're... Are they going to say, ah, this guy doesn't have the drive. He doesn't get it. <laughs> so do you have to kind of educate the, the organization, or at least the managers above you, about this new concept? I mean – Yes, you're so right that the whole purpose of this book is to start a new kind of conversation because mm. right now in too many cultures, if you say, I'm not interested in the chief executive's job – People wrongly conclude that means you lack ambition, you lack drive, there's something wrong with you, uh, you lack the killer instinct to be the final decision maker. Mm. In my own situation, I remember clearly being hauled in by our HR director to be told, you know, be careful, Richard, someone's heard you in the corridor saying you never want to be a chief executive ever again. And I said, what's wrong with that? He said, people will conclude you never want to be a chief executive ever again. <laughs> that was the whole point. So you're, you're so right that, that the whole conversation needs to be 
kind of reappraised, a new look at what leadership really means and what roles do genuinely exist would help all leadership endeavors. And, uh, and that's the hope for this book. So what's the difference between somebody that you're mentoring for mm. a position and a con- conciliary? I'm- well, I think a mentor is one of the roles you can play as conciliary for mm. sure. Uh, it's, it's, it's mentoring, coaching, helping other people achieve their full potential is one of the great qualities of a conciliary. And I look in the book at examples from sport and business and politics of people who've done that very, very well. So that's one of the archetypes. But there are others. There are conciliary who make things happen, who deliver, who fix. I'm thinking of Lord Dayton for Sebastian Coe. Lord Dayton delivered the Olympic Games that went down so well in Britain, Seb Coe, the athlete, the front man, you know, took a lot of the glory and the limelight and rightly so, but he had uh, Paul Dayton, the, the chief operating officer for the games behind him. You can get conciliary who are truth tellers, whether that's the, the fool in Shakespeare or your spouse at home, people who you can rely on to really give you the absolute candid, uh, unqualified truth. Uh, you can get the kind of people you've just mentioned, the coaches, the mentors, the educators, uh, and then you can also get people like your executive assistants, your chiefs of staff who take the world, weight of the world off your shoulders. So I think there are many different archetypes, all of whom in the plural I call conciliary. Hmm. You know, one question I ask all the authors that come on the show is, what was your aha moment? And that is like you're, you're writing the book, you've kind of got this theory and it's coming out in words which change the way you perceive it, and then something clicks, something you realize was the truth, but now it is a crystal reality for you. So for in this book, where was your aha moment? The, the revelation was just how reciprocal the great leadership team relationships need to be mm. for an enterprise to thrive. I started the book with a mild kind of resentment that the final decision makers do still get a disproportionate share of the airtime, credit and the recognition, mm. and, and a sort of quiet fury that drove me to shine a temporary spotlight on the number two position. <laughs> and where I concluded in the book was was not where I expected to be, which is we need these final decision makers more than ever and we need a celebration of the craft of the conciliary to balance that charismatic leader. And it, it's only if they march together in step towards some kind of higher purpose that the whole thing really clicks. Hmm. How does uh, – now, because we're talking about the top of the top, can we still use the same theory in lower management and in, in smaller uh, teams that are with working within an organization? And there's a loud yes to that. The, the idea <laughs> for calling the final decision maker, the A, and everybody else leading from the shadows, the C, came from a project management system that we use at Saatchi called RASCI, mm-hmm. where on any, any task of any importance, we clearly assign the roles, responsibilities, and accountabilities according to the specific function you're going to play on that task. And and I conflated that project management system into simply just the A and the C. And that exists absolutely throughout the organization. So so this AC model, this reciprocal leadership model, works in, in any discrete project, in any function, uh, across disciplines. 
to the point where it, it really can be something you can adopt very early on in your career and, and right throughout the organization. Because in truth, as, as we do approach our work, often we move from A position to C position in the course of a day, uh, certainly in the course of a week. Mm. It's also a model you can use at home, dare I say it, because it relates to partnerships and how at home you assign responsibilities for some decisions which might otherwise become rather controversial and noisy. You talk about what motivates the C, what makes a C, and the types of C. I'm fascinated to know what types of C are there. Categorized Cs according to the benefits that they deliver for their A's. Mm. So I start with the answer and say, what is it the A leader really wants to feel? And interviewing people who are running big businesses to uh, actually, you know, running countries and the people behind them, great leaders need to feel liberated. They, they do have ridiculous numbers of decisions to make throughout any one day, often weighty decisions, and they, they therefore need their diaries cleared. They need all that kind of dull fodder of management taken away from them. So whether it's a chief of staff or an executive assistant, a scheduler, um, you can act as a lodestone, uh, someone who literally takes the weight of the world off the shoulders of, of their leader. That's one categorization. The other thing that leaders really love are fresh ideas. They need people to go out there and find what's new, what's different, and bring them fresh thinking all the time. So they're educators, and they can come in the form of non-exec chairwomen, chairmen, uh, coaches, consultants. The third thing they need is to be told the truth. They need people to tell them candidly what's going on. The last thing a great leader wants is a bunch of yes people, flatterers around them who just second guess what the leader wants to hear. Um, so they're anchors. And then the final categorization are people who make things happen, who deliver, who, who, who amplify that leader's feeling that they're very decisive and that they are getting things done. Hmm. Now, you know, once again, we go back to, you know, you've got these two people or, or okay, you've got your leader and maybe they have multiple consigliere. Yeah. Do the consigliere, do they intermingle? Do they talk with themselves? Do consigliere become consigliere for other consigliere that are, yeah. you, know, you kind of get a group that, that, or a pack of consigliere. Yeah. Always. It, it, it's, it's a great, it's a great thought, Bobby, because you're so right. Whilst there, whilst there is in history, uh, when we look back, always some kind of defining C, a C major, if you like, to the leaders, yeah. whether that's Harry Hopkins to FDR uh, or it's uh, a Thomas Cromwell to Henry VIII. Um, there are a number of advisors and conciliary around a leader, and they have to be able to function as a group. So that circle needs to function. Hmm. On behalf of the leader, I, I, I did a lot of work with the people who operated behind Tony Blair. And whatever you think of Blair's politics, one of the things you can say about him as a leader is particularly in his early terms, he surrounded himself with a very diverse set of conciliary, whether that was his diary secretary to his chief of staff, to his head of press, to his head of policy. And, and the great leaders do that. And you then need one C to kind of be the one who convenes that circle and who's able somehow to bind that circle together. And typically that person will emerge as being the C major. I like that, C major. <laughs> yeah. They also have to be able to play guitar. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you've raised music now, but, you know, if you look at if you, I talked also to the, the famous biographer of the Beatles, Philip Norman. And I asked him, you know, who really was the fifth Beatle? And he, there's a long list of people claiming to the, be, be the most influential fifth Beatle. His view, uh, and I share it loudly, is that it, it was a guy called Neil Aspinall who, who really understood the quality that the Beatles stood for and ended up, in fact, managing Apple Inc. So he was a C who became an A. Hmm. Do you think great C's will always be great A's? No. I think uh, great C's have the chance to be great A's because to be great C's, they have to be really competent, trustworthy people who act with integrity. So they, they have the qualities that it takes to be an A. But I think there are also some qualities of an A that are very special. And that's that's one of the conclusions I draw in the book. And it's it's why I decided I'm better suited finally as a C rather than an A, because when it comes to the absolute cut and thrust of A leadership, uh, I am inclined to take a little bit too long on my decision making. It can weigh heavily. And I'm simply better playing off the striker than the person who's expected to score the goals. Mm. It's, it's, do you think it's more of a shoot from the hip, uh, a more relaxed um, discussion that uh, uh, the, the C position is compared to the leader where whenever he opens his mouth, people are listening and they're going to be analyzing it? Like yeah, I think, that, I, think, I think we burden our A leaders with crazy expectations. Mm. We want them to shoot from the hip. I mean, right now, if you think of what President Obama is going through, where we're all clamoring for his instant decision about what to do with Iraq, who would want to be in that kind of position? And, uh, you know, again, whatever you reflect about his, his politics, uh, I, for one, rather like the idea that together with his advisors, you know, he's, he's, he appears to have some cool under fire. Um, I do think that there are some C roles which actually need rapid decision making and rapid counsel. One, one of the examples that uh, was, was quoted to me by the, the former Lord Chancellor in, in Great Britain, Lord Faulkner, about the civil servants who are kind of institutional Cs, the top diplomats, mm. they're, they're, they're often asked for their advice. And the best civil servants, like Jeremy Haywood, who's advised several British prime ministers, are those that say, here are the three things that I think are going on. Uh, here are your options. And here, prime minister, is what I think you should do about that. So that they're doing the rapid thinking on behalf of the A-leader. Ultimately, then, the A-leader has to make a decision to go with that advice or not. But the great civil servants actually go beyond simply dispensing advice. They go, advice, options, here's what I think you could do, here's what I think do and then they back off well you know that brings up a point that like that's the that's the classic definition of a consigliere is somebody that said hey by the way you've got a problem and here is a, a broader description of that problem and here's three solutions where you have naysayers that say you got a problem fix it and walks out of the room or i don't like that yeah. idea and give you no input how can you work with zero input yeah uh, you, you can't. And I, I think, uh, again, that some of the conciliary I, I, I mentioned in the book, they, they see ahead. You know, they're, they're able, because they've been given time and space to do this by their leader, mm. they're, they're able to, to use their foresight and their insight. They see ahead. They scope problems. Uh, they give the leaders surprising scenarios to consider. And when that leader's made a decision, they will then help that leader sell that decision into the rest of the group. Mm. 
Have you ever heard of an, uh, an organization that's had um, them switching positions um, and actually the, the, the C position, he, he does the A position for a month or two months? or uh, Yeah, uh, it's, it's great, isn't it? That would be the perfect model. Funnily enough, uh, Satya Nadella, the new chief executive of Microsoft, actually called Bill Gates his consigliere when he invited him back only a couple of months ago to help advise on kind of product development and technological development. So there is a smart CEO who's decided that it is not a hazard to have a former CEO around him or her giving advice. It's actually really sensible to have a founder and a thinker of Bill Gates's quality brought back into the fold in a, in a much more conciliary kind of role. Mm. So I, th- I think there's a very recent example there from a very large company. I- I'm, I'm a big supporter of those kind of um, fluid arrangements. It takes a lot of sophistication and maturity in a management team to say, actually, the roles could be interchangeable. Um, I do recommend, even if it's for a period of 90 days, 100 days, that the top conciliary and the top A consider swapping roles just to, just so that they can uh, revert to their existing responsibilities with a great deal more empathy and understanding of what the other's going through. Yeah, I, I, that would be awesome to see stuff like that happen because I, you, know, you get put in a hot seat and you realize, oh yeah, now I remember why I don't like this position. And then when you go back to see, you're really motivated to do a better job. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask, how should people approach this book? Is it a book that you should read cover to cover? Can you just skip to part two? What, what would be your recommendation? Well, I think if you're a very busy A leader, uh, if, you're, if you're really smart, you delegate the reading of this book to your most influential C and say, you give me the, you give me the heads up. Yeah. The bits that the A leader cannot ignore, I hope, are the homage to the A leader. So this is why we think you're great, why we need you. Yeah. And also uh, the back two chapters, which point to the hazards in your role, uh, principally of taking yourself too seriously and falling prey to hubris like great leaders do. And also pointing out the hazards of excessive C, position, uh, C behavior because Cs, if they get carried away with their own importance, can also present the A leader with, with real trouble. So I think there are kind of three key chapters for the A. Uh, I think the C should read it cover to cover. And I hope because it's drawn from so many different examples from history, literature, the arts, sport, politics, both current and historical uh, with very live interviews of A's that they will recognize, C's that they may not have heard of because they have operated from the shadows. Mm. It's rich in uh, illustrations of people that they will admire. And uh, it has very, very practical advice in each chapter. For you, I mean, you can't choose yourself, obviously. But who <laughs> is your favorite consigliere that you've run into in, in your career? Um, I've got I've got lots. I've got to, I suppose, uh, discount my wife who's probably been the most important (laughs) influence on my career mainly stopping me taking the most terrible decisions and making horrendous overly emotional uh, career decisions Mm. so she stops me squeaking about my a uh, very important Mm -hmm. i have a great advisor currently at saatchi and saatchi called jane kendall who's one of the brightest sharpest people i've ever worked with and she's always thinking ahead she's also got a particular skill at mediating bringing uh, peaceful compromise to heated situations and getting the best ideas out of people. Of the interviewees, I I interviewed so many, um, I was particularly taken 
with a number of uh, Cs of whom we really not heard a great deal. Um, I think historical figures are great to, to think through. I, I, I'm a big fan of Eleanor Roosevelt, largely because she, be, I think, was really the first person to kind of formally take the stage as a first lady and had a big impact on, uh, you know, FDR, FDR's policies. Mm. Um, and uh, I, I'm also a big fan of some fictional characters. I mean, I've just come from Washington and I couldn't help but sort of talk to uh, some of the characters in House of Cards and Veep, who I think uh, either through comedy or drama off, offer sees great learning. Oh, I've been watching Veep and I cringe with her consigliere, the, the ineptitude. But at the end of the day, <laughs> things happen and things move forward. Yeah. I mean, I love, I, you know, obviously, I, you, you're so right. That's the comedy of it. But I think Gary's attentiveness to, <laughs> to Selena is just wonderful. And, you know, we all know those roadies, those caddies, those uh, assistants who, who literally live uh, to ensure that the A can take to the stage. And you've got to admire them for subsuming their ego the way they do. <laughs> yeah, well, I, but for those people, that's when they're happiest. You know, that is the role. Yeah. I remember many, many, many years ago when I was an assistant photographer um, back in Toronto, and uh, I loved that position because I was on top of everything to the point where when the photographer turned to me, where's that film? And before he could say film, he would have it in his hand. Yeah. And for me, I got a, men a tremendous satisfaction on just – overdoing my job to such a level that uh, you could watch the photographer relax more and more as we got deeper into the shoot. And ultimately, he did a better job because he, he just worried about less and less and focused more on the frame and on the art of being the photographer. Wow. I mean, that's, that's selfless behavior. That, you just made me think of one of the characters in the book I, I mentioned, a guy called Ira Dubinsky, who mm. was um, – the go-to guy for the late Jack Layton uh, when he was running um, in an election uh, in, in your home country. And he, he again talks of that thrill of being, you know, the guy. It almost felt like he was the Secret Service guy because wherever he went, people kind of needed to press his flesh to get to Mr. Layton. And he just did everything for him. He said, I'd tip up, I'd, I'd watch him having breakfast in his pajamas with his family. And from that moment to the, you know, the time he parked him back home, he was the guy. And there is a, there is a kind of selfless satisfaction in doing that. It is. And, and like you're saying in the book, it's not recognized and it's not part of a curriculum in school where people see that as a career option. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about how people can find out more about this book. Uh, have you, I mean, you're a super busy guy, so I, I wouldn't assume that you have a blog like a lot of people do. But um, how do people find out more about the book? There, there is a, a website, uh, www.concilierybook.com, mm. and you can download uh, a little bit of the content. There's a, a great quiz to take. Uh, that will share will share an answer as to whether you might have conciliary qualities or not, uh, or whether you're a lusting, thrusting A kind of leader. <laughs> um, uh, there's uh, some resources and also uh, links to articles and, and, and press and media that, that, that have kicked in. So there is actually uh, um, a good website up and running. So for all our listeners, what's one piece of advice that you could give them right now that will help them on the path to understanding and utilization of the concepts in this book? My advice would be to 
continually reflect as aspiring leaders as to which kind of role is going to most accelerate your learning to be the complete leader mm. and to give undue consideration to the C roles, the many roles as lodestones, educators, anchors or deliverers that will allow you the chance to develop your leadership capability. That's, that's the first piece of advice. The second piece of advice is to get deep into a discussion with your leader, whether that leader is an A or C, into how to drive a better reciprocal relationship. And there's concrete advice in the book about how to do that. Hmm. Wow. So, for all you people out there, consigliere, sorry to the Italian people why I have slaughtered that word for the whole interview. <laughs> Leading from the shadows, why coming top is sometimes second best and probably an amazing career move for many, many people out there. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to subscribe, leave comments, or make a request on our website, businessbooktalk.com. See you next week. <laughs>